everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice comes the story of Jody Sinclair and her husband, Billy Sinclair. She has a new book coming out, Love Behind Bars, which tells the story of meeting Billy in 1981, then an inmate at the notorious Angola prison in Louisiana. He was sent there for an accidental murder during a robbery gone wrong. After facing trial, which was skewed against him and being sentenced to death, he saw firsthand the corruption and abuse rife in the criminal justice system and began an unrelenting crusade for reform. When the pair married by proxy a year after meeting, Jody took up Billy's fight. Lots of angles to this story. Welcome to the show, Jody. Thank you for having me. So um, tell us about the book. Why did I write the book? I wrote the book because I thought I had an obligation to people I'll never know generations down in this family uh, who will wonder, oh, gee, my great-great-grandmother married a murderer. What was that all about? And so I went back over 25 years of, of letters and documents and legal documents and notations and personal notes to put this story together because I thought it should be told for them. But I also thought it should be told uh, for people who have loved ones behind bars because the need for prison reform is really desperate, especially right now. So how did you come to even know Billy at Angola? Well, uh, I was assigned by the CBS affiliate in Baton Rouge to uh, cover the governor and the legislature. And I'd been a reporter there for nearly two years, but Louisiana was getting ready to conduct its very first execution in a long number of years after the U.S. Supreme Court outlawed the death penalty on the basis it was unconstitutional, said, rewrite your state statute. So an execution was coming up. So I suggested to the news director, I said, uh, we should do a series on the death penalty. So photographer and I on the 17th of March 1981 drive up to the prison we enter we drive down to the unit in the prison with the death house where the electric chair was unload the equipment walk in and I look up and see this man who 
I was born in Texas for all the world, looked like an old West cowboy, impeccably dressed in blue jeans and boots and so forth. I would never have taken him for an inmate, which he was. <laughs> but as I later found out, after being so struck by his appearance and his demeanor and how he was speaking to another reporter, um, I um, realized that he he was a co-editor of a very famous publication called The Angolite, because it was the only uncensored publication in the United States of America for inmates. And he was a winner of national awards that tons of free world reporters never get. You know, the George Polk Award, the Sidney Hillman Award, um, an award from the American Bar Association, uh, the Robert F. Kennedy Award for Special Interest Journalism. So not only was he this singular figure that was so arresting when I very first saw him, like someone coming back from 100 years ago, he had this incredible intellectual background and ability to write about what was going on inside the prison. So how does he get into the prison in the first place? Well, uh, of course, my visit there was okayed by the warden. We applied to the prison. We said we want to do this story about the death penalty. And the warden at the time said, that's fine. I'll meet you down uh, at the death house, and we'll do our interviews there in the room with the electric chair. So on that day, my photographer and I drove up there um, and had permission. You know, the front gate let us in, and we drove down to meet the warden there in the death house. And uh, tell us about Billy's case. Billy's case is a, is a really singular case because it is a perfect example of two things, rehabilitation and selective enforcement. Let's deal with rehabilitation first. In 1986, after we had been married about four years, I got a very strange phone call from him one evening, and I knew something was up. And when I got up to the prison, driving from Texas to Louisiana for that visit, he told me that a top-ranking prison official had approached him and said, you're rehabilitated, and for $15,000, I can get you out of here. Well, Billy was infuriated because of the long period of time he had spent getting himself rehabilitated, and he said, I'm not going to commit a crime to get out of here. So... Um, I called my cousin in Washington, D.C., a very powerful Republican congressman, and I said, put me in touch with the FBI in D.C. because I don't trust anybody in Louisiana, which he did. Billy on the inside fed me information. I wore a wire for the FBI. In the end, the pardon board chairman was convicted. And the terrible end to that story is that every inmate who paid um, the price, whatever it was, to get out, they all went free. And Billy was the only one they kept behind bars because they said he hadn't provided enough evidence, even though he was a whistleblower. And the point of that is um, he proved his rehabilitation when he absolutely positively turned down the opportunity. And he knew at the time other inmates were getting out. But no, he wasn't going to commit a crime and he wasn't going to involve me in a crime. Uh, the second thing, of course, about his case is selective enforcement. Um, his trial was rigged. The prosecutor put someone on the stand who said 
that he intentionally in cold blood shot down the store clerk inside the store and told the witnesses who actually saw what happened, sent them home. They saw a man running across a parking, uh, the parking area in front of the store in the dark, in the rain, running away, fired an unnamed bullet over his shoulder, and um, it took this man and nicked his aorta. So there was no intent to kill, and the crime did not occur uh, during the commission of a robbery. But based on the evidence, Billy got the death penalty, and he spent six years on death row until the United States Supreme Court overturned the death penalty, and he got a life sentence. <clears throat> but when I look at his case as a reporter and as a, as a wife uh, battling to bring him home, <clears throat> and I look at the facts and I see um, a doctor from Shreveport, Louisiana, who beat his wife to death with a sledgehammer, and he served 11 years. Uh, and I see a guy who was really angry because his girlfriend wouldn't reconcile with him. So up in Bossier Parish in North Louisiana, he loaded up a shotgun, went into a bar, uh, sprayed the bar with bullets, reloaded the shotgun, and fired again. He killed two people and wounded a bunch of people. And he got out after 23 years. So Billy is not paroled till after 40 years. And the point of saying this, sir, is that those victims, the relatives of the woman who was bludgeoned to death, uh, the relatives of the people who were shot down in the bar, they didn't get the same quote-unquote level of justice, if you will, that the victims in, in Billy's case did because they had pulled behind the scenes. Now, I believe that victims should fight hard for their loved ones and should fight hard for justice because not to do so would be to betray the loved one. And I deeply respect that. What I find fault with is illegal activity behind the scenes calculated and targeted at specific inmates to keep them from getting out. And it's my firm belief that Billy's not the only one who has suffered that kind of outcome. So how does he end up getting out of prison? Well, at the end, um, after 40 years of, and this is all detailed in the book, all the lawsuits that were filed, all the legal attempts and the rehabilitation and the support by like New Orleans Metropolitan Crime Commission supported his release. And he's turned down over and over and over again. And he was beginning to go blind um, because he lost control of the muscles in his eyelids. And other inmates were taping them up with Band-Aids so he could see. I also knew he had a heart murmur. Um, I went to a very powerful Houston congresswoman, Sheila Jackson Lee, and begged her office to help, which it did. So he got transferred to a moderate environment. And I often, this is not illegal in Louisiana, I have to laugh about it because it kind of tells you the way the place is. I went to the most powerful legislator in the state of Louisiana at the time, an African-American senator named Charles Jones. And I asked him to represent my husband at the next parole hearing. And he consented. 
and I paid him $25,000 to do that out of money I had saved against the time Billy might come home. And he got Billy out. He did. His argument. Uh, and so that's how ultimately in the end Billy, Billy got home. He came home in 2006. Now, if he had turned down the parole and he had stayed five more years, he would have walked out a free man. But because he took the parole, he's still under parole, which I almost find amusing. He applied for a hearing once to be released from parole, and the verdict uh, that came back was, no, you are on parole until 2055. Of course, then he'd be 110 years old, and I'd be 116 years old. I looked at that, and I thought it was the most of all the decisions made by pardon boards, parole boards, et cetera, et cetera, it was the most ludicrous response I had ever seen. But that's how he got home. Wow. So what year did he go in? Um, the crime occurred in 1965. His trial was in 1966, and he was sentenced to death. I see. And sent, yeah, sent to Angola on death row at the age of 20. So he's a kid when he comes in. Um, he's far older when he gets out. Um, but uh, tell us about what Angola was like. I've, I've of course, read stories about pretty notorious uh, prison that used to be a, a slavery uh, uh, plantation and they converted it into a prison. Uh, so what's it like there? Well, for years, uh, it was still like a plantation uh, because of the way inmates were treated and the number of ones who died, and the history of that is all um, in my book. I only know Angola from the outside, although Billy was there when I met him and was there for a number of years until uh, he had to be moved into protective custody because of uh, being uh, the whistleblower in the pardon for sales scam. But Billy um, is here to briefly tell you um, what that environment was like all the years that he was there. And as the uh, inmate he was, but the journalist he is, um, he can provide you uh, with an inside look at that place. Hello, David. Hello. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having both of us. Uh, Angola in the 60s and the 70s was a typical southern prison plantation. It had been a plantation back in the 1800s before it was sold to the state in 1901 at which time the state just assumed that it would be run like a, a, a prison plantation. Inmates were leased out to private uh, businesses and for, their, for their labor, and it was a very brutal, brutal regime. So it had this whole history of being a violent prison. But in the late 1960s and early 1970s, it had become what newspapers in the free world had called the bloodiest prison in America. And it had uh, inmates were, were killed, inmates uh, uh, in knife fights and gang attacks and everything else. 
there was an extremely violent prison. And I was released from the death row population in 1972 and the uh, general population. And when I was released, the prison was still uh, segregated. And I was one of five inmates that uh, successfully integrated to prison uh, in 1973 uh, without a single instance of violence. So it was an environment that was extremely, extremely violent. But then in the mid-1970s, 1976, a local federal judge after a number of lawsuits had been filed, and I had been one of the inmates that filed a, a, a lawsuit against conditions at the prison. Uh, the federal judge decided to intervene, declared the whole prison system unconstitutional, and ordered massive reforms. And they brought in a new administration, and this new administration cleaned up the prison. Uh, new facilities within the prison were built and constructed. Uh, a lot of the hardcore uh, gang leaders and inmates were locked up in a in a you know in solitary confinement, and the prison went from being the bloodiest prison in America to be in the safest prison in America. And when I met Jody in, in, in 1981, at that time, it was distinguished for being a very safe penal environment, which explains how myself and another inmate as co-editors of this prison publication called The Angelite, how during that 1978, 79, 80, 81 period, we managed to, to garner a number of very prestigious journalism awards and were functioning with the only free penal press in America. I mean, it was a very, it was called the Angolite Experiment, and it was a very unique uh, situation. And that led to me being at the death house because I was doing a death penalty article a comprehensive death penalty article for the prison magazine when Jody came to do her story for uh, the television station. So that's how I passed across in the death house. Interesting. It's, Go it's ahead. an unlikely love story. It's been called an unlikely love story by a columnist with the New York Daily News who not only wrote a blurb for the book, but has done a beautiful review of the book, how it occurred, um, how long it took to um, to free Billy and all of the different um, uh, terrible things that, that we went through um, during that 25 years, which is telescoped in my mind. It's it, it, I don't think of it much anymore, but sometimes when I read about inmates being abused, it all, you know, comes roaring back because I worried about him every single day. After he exposed the pardons for sale scam, somebody, and we will never know who, revealed within the prison system that the quote-unquote snitch was Billy. And a contract was put out on him because there were inmates that had money in the pipeline. And when the scam was exposed, they lost the money. And uh, so there was a lot of anger. And I remember getting a phone call from Billy one morning that was very grave, that there were death threats against him, that they were coming for him. So I called the U.S. attorney, who immediately dispatched two marshals to the prison. And then I called the warden. And I told him that Billy had exposed this, that we were working with the FBI. And I said to the warden, I said, you better get down there to that cell block 
and you better make certain that he's okay. Because if anything happens to him, your ass is grass and the federal government is the lawnmower. So the prison protected Billy until the federal marshals got there and took him away into protective custody. But it was a bit of a cliffhanger, to say the least. Sounds like it. David, let me uh, let me say this, because you mentioned earlier when Jody uh, finally managed to get me out. I went in a young man. I was 20 years old when I was arrested. I was uh, 61 years old when I made parole. And age over the years, there were numerous struggles. There was, I was went in the most, one of the most infamous uh, inmates in Louisiana penal history and became one of its most famous, one of its most rehabilitated inmates in the system. A rehabilitation was recognized by pardon boards and parole boards and even the court system. And, you know, had become this, uh, in a lot of ways, national cause to live. Uh, New Orleans Metropolitan Crime Commission, which is an ultra-conservative and, and very established uh, crime-fighting organization, I became the only inmate to ever endorse for release. But by the time I got out, after having gone through all of these trials and tribulations in the prison system, if you will, I had become, in a lot of ways, an old man. Uh, old man who had challenged the system over and over and over again, who had fought the system over and over again, and only to lose, you know, but there were successes. I got my life sentence, my death sentence reduced to life. Uh, life sentence uh, reduced to a specific number of years that made me pro-eligible and add to seven parole hearings. I managed to walk out. But in those last years, if it had not been for Jody, as she once told me, you get up on the back of the wagon, I'm going to take us home from here. So in a lot of ways, she saved my life toward the end because I was struggling not only physically with, 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 with heart problems and, and eye problems. Uh, the health had, had taken a turn. And I was in general population again. Fortunately, by that time when I was in general population, the whole attitude of the general inmate population had changed toward me. I was no longer perceived as a, a snitch, but perceived as someone who had spent his whole prison sentence uh, fighting against the system, fighting to expose corruption. So in a lot of ways, I was a very respected, highly regarded old man, old philosopher, so to speak. And so, you know, but if it hadn't have been for Jody in those last years, and if it hadn't have been for Sheila Jackson Lee, and if it hadn't have been for Senator Charles Jones, I would have died in that prison system. You You have to ask yourself, why was there such terrible opposition in Billy's case? And that goes back to selective enforcement. Um, The victim in Billy's case had been, uh, came from a particular neighborhood in Baton Rouge that was extremely close-knit. And a lot of the people he was in high school with moved into very powerful positions in state and local government. And behind the scenes, they kept orchestrating over and over again denials in his, in his case. And that's what we, we were up against until finally, 40 years after, you know, he was locked up, 25 years after I met him, 
we were able finally uh, to prevail. But that's what it took, and that's why I um, often speak out about selective enforcement, because as I said, selective enforcement cheats other victims. They don't get the same level of quote-unquote justice. But here you have this one case with a lot of power behind the scenes, uh, manipulating it over and over again, not just the rig trial, but changing um, his record to make him look like a fourth offender, which he was not. Um, he And, um, and uh, that, you know, uh, people who are labeled fourth offenders just usually never get out. So we were up against all of that, and it was very, very difficult. Now, Sister Helen Prejean wrote the preface for my book because she believes that Billy is a prime example of why we should never have the death penalty. And she has a website, and she is promoting the book on that website, it's my understanding, um, because she has a strong belief in Billy, and she told me on the phone yesterday, you know, she wrote Dead Man Walking, which they made into that powerful movie. She told me yesterday on the phone, Billy is a fine man. He's a great man. God bless him. You understand the level of opposition, David. Uh, the victim played on a high school football team that was called the greatest football team, high school football team in Louisiana history. One of the his teammates was Billy Cannon who at the time became LSU's only Heisman Trophy winner, went on to sign an NFL contract, uh, played in the NFL for uh, almost 10 years, and was a, a, a football icon, a football hero there in, the, in, in, in Baton Rouge. And he was behind the scenes, the main source of power, the main source of opposition. And other people on this football team had gravitated into positions of government, uh, positions of politics, positions of law enforcement. So each time that I came up by the pardon board here and seeking clemency or parole board here and seeking parole, uh, the victim's family was able to marshal together all this very powerful opposition, which would oppose uh, the relief, and there would always be the presence of the district attorney's office at these hearings. And throughout all this, they had one central argument. It's that I walked into that store, and a cold shot the store clerk in cold blood inside the store, and coolly and calmly walked away to my getaway car. That was the image that they had created all those years ago at my trial which was all based on perjured testimony and suppressed evidence. As, it, as the truth came out, it showed that I did not shoot the man inside the store, that he rushed me. I turned and ran from the store. He chased me outside the store, and he was shot in the parking lot of the, uh, of the convenience store. So, you know, but that opposition had the ability and the means to not only manufacture a portrait of the crime, they also had the power to intimidate any public official who dared uh, support my release. There were people along the way who endorsed my release who had their very lives threatened uh, by this very powerful group of people, and they openly said that if I ever got out that they would have me killed. So when you have that kind of political backdrop in a case where 
uh, the, the, as Jody used the term, selective enforcement, who have the, the ability and the power and all the resources to demand their own particular kind of justice, then what you have is a system that does not work, a system that has failed. And, and that's why I spent 40 years in prison for a, a, a crime of violence in which at the time and throughout all those years, the average amount of time being served was roughly 15 years uh, for a similar situated inmate. So let me ask you this, because we've talked about the death penalty. Um, I know you guys have written about the death penalty. What is your perspective on the death penalty? Well, I witnessed an execution while I was still a reporter between um, 1986 and um, 87. I was working for an affiliate in a town called Beaumont, Texas, and went up to Huntsville for that. But I made my peace with the death penalty after I met Billy. Pros and cons, pros and cons. Um, every argument that you could think of from a Catholic priest, how do you uh, show killing is wrong by killing somebody, uh, all the other sides of the arguments on the legal side, so forth. And having been uh, reared, you know, a little Catholic girl, uh, I looked at it and decided it was murder, and there was no justification for it. So meeting Billy and encountering um, his situation, and then some years later actually witnessing a man being strapped down and killed in Huntsville, Texas, um, my feelings about the death penalty are uh, that it should there shouldn't be a death penalty for any reason. There should not be a death penalty. And I know Sister Helen feels the same way, and both of us have grave fears about Attorney General William Barr wanting to reactivate um, the federal, uh, the death penalty at the federal level. But I am in absolute opposition to it, and those are the reasons why. And then, you know, oh, go ahead. Excuse me, David. Is you know we 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 have a society where we we have the death penalty and and uh, and name. But it doesn't exist really in, in practice. There are executions roughly now. Uh, every year we have anywhere from 20 to 25 executions. Uh, juries are not as uh, likely to impose the death penalty now, uh, preferring to opt for life without parole. So what you do is you go from a fiscal execution to a lifelong execution. We have a justice system justice system that believes, well, if we're not going to put them to death, let's put them away in prison for the rest of their life without the benefit of parole or any hope of a executive clemency. In other words, they will die in prison. Right now in Louisiana, there's 4,200 inmates serving life sentences. They're all without the benefit of parole. Now, every one of those guys are going to die in prison with the exception of maybe a dozen 15, 20 at most, may get new trials or secure executive clemency and ultimately uh, gain parole release. But the overwhelming majority are going to die in prison. The same in California. You just had, I think, roughly nearly 800 inmates uh, who uh, uh, were released from under the death sentence. And they're going to go into general population. They're going to be serving life sentences. All of them are going to be without parole. 
So we're creating a whole now a whole class of inmates within the nation's prison system. And right now, there are 42,000 inmates, 42,000 inmates in the nation's prison system who are serving life without parole and are never going to get out. So you have now geriatric units in prison. You have hospice units in prison because these inmates are growing old and are going to die in prison. I mean, I I walked in a young man and, and escaped as a, a a person 61 years of age. And I was one of the last ones to manage to get out the door. The door is closing permanently. So when you get to, when you talk about the death penalty in this context, you wonder which is more cruel, the death penalty or this creating a permanent uh, uh, Senate where you're going to have a whole community of people across the nation who are going to serve right now. Some of them in their 40th and 50th year of, of service. Some of them went in at 17, 18. They're now in their 70s. You've got some inmates on death row that's been locked up 35, 40, 45 years. I mean, what is happening, very quietly happening, is that you're creating such a level of cruelty that the death penalty seems mild in comparison. I do not support the death penalty, and I think it should be done away with. But what I think is that it should be replaced with a system that has the ability and has the means to release inmates after they have served an appropriate amount of time that they no longer pose a threat to society, whether that's 20, 25, 30, 35 years. You build hope in the whatever sentence you replace the death penalty with. Right now, it's being replaced with a sentence in which there is no hope. Well, th- what you have now is death in slow motion. What you had when uh, the death penalty um, executions were reached from their peak, you know, um, there were the different modes of death. And I re- remember interviewing Billy about that the first time that I met him. But usually, uh, they don't make mistakes and death happens very quickly. This, you die over a period of 40, 45, 50 years. And I think like Billy, not only should the death penalty be outlawed, but these kinds of sentences should no longer, um, exist. There, there needs to be a lot of prison reform and a lot of changing because what is happening is inhumane. So, um, just about out of time, but I have to ask this question. How do you go from covering Billy to marrying Billy? It was a long process. It, it, it took uh, close to a year in which I was absolutely horrified um, that I was uh, a, a love at first sight thing with an inmate. How was that? How did that happen? My privileged background, you know, private school education, living in Europe, living in Mexico, so forth. How did it end up like that? And I didn't trust it at first. And it, and it plagued me over and over and over again. But gradually, through being allowed to visit him, um, I came to know him. I came to understand his plight. And I decided um, that I would never abandon him, that I would never leave him. But it was a struggle to go back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, but you did this. Yeah, but you, you know, so on and so forth. Why that? Um, And uh, I made my peace with it. 
I realized this is a rehabilitated person. And um, what's happening here, besides all that, and I'm sure you're waiting to hear this, um, obviously, um, there was a strong sexual uh, attraction to this man, physically, yes. And um, and mentally, uh, my mind ended up bonding with his over that period of time. So that's how it was a struggle. Um, it's outlined in the book. And um, uh, it, anyone who wants to talk to us about that, we're on Facebook. And so we, we, we will respond. But that's, that's how it happened. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. And I did everything I could to test it over and over again to make certain it was real and to make certain that I should uh, devote my life to that. I didn't realize devote, you know, a quarter of a century to it, which is the way it turned out. But if you love someone, you don't abandon them, you know, or in country music, stand by your man. So that's what I did. When does the book come out? Um, the official date is April 28th. So Tuesday. Yes, Tuesday. Great. Um, you can find it on the Internet, um, on Amazon and, and, and things like that. And I hope people will... It, I hope people will like the book and understand what one person went through, but I hope they will see the broader picture, which is that there are plenty of other people suffering just like we did, and the prison system needs to be reformed. And they can go, David, to www.lovebehindbars.com, and that's our website. And there's a interview with a, a little film footage of me and Jody where we are now. Uh, that shows what our life has become and what we've done with our lives that uh, the, the viewer might find interesting. Great. Thank you so much for coming on our show. No, thank you for asking us. Um, I really do appreciate it because now not only did I feel compelled to stand by Billy, but I feel compelled taking this larger message to other people in the hopes it will give some comfort to other inmate families uh, and that it will help with prison reform, which is desperately needed. That was Jody Sinclair, whose book, Love Behind Bars, is coming out next Tuesday, April the 28th. And you also heard from Billy Sinclair, who spent 41 years in prison, if my math is correct, going from death row to life in prison to release. An amazing story. And he lived through Angola prison and corruption scandals to get there. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com. Mm-hmm.